So, let's uh, stand, please, and turn to John chapter 12. John chapter 12, uh, starting at verse 12. And we're going to go to verse 19. So, John 12, 12. On the next day, the large crowd who had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took the branches of the palm trees and went out to meet him, and began to shout, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Jesus, finding a young donkey, sat on it, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. These things his disciples did not understand at the first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that the things... These things are written of him, and that they had done these things to him. So the people who were with him, when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to testify about him. For this reason also the people went and met him, because they heard that he had performed this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are not doing any good. Look, the whole world has gone after him. Pray as a church. Father, we're grateful for your, your message this week. And the words that are written in here inspired 2,000 years ago. And at first glance, there may seem to be not a ton in here, but I'm hoping, Lord, as your Spirit unveils this passage to us today, that we see the truth for what it is and, and what you want to relate to us. Um, God, I just ask you to filter through what is in my head and what's in your head and be able to only speak what's in your head. And I just want uh, this to be a time of encouragement and maybe a bit of time of laughter and and uh, just uh, to come out of here with a stronger resolve to honor you with our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we begin chapter 12, uh, or I'll look at it once again because we did it uh, a couple weeks ago. Uh, as we begin this gospel, we find ourselves about halfway through the book. And although we're halfway in terms of John's writing, we're not halfway in terms of Jesus' timeline in his ministry. The first 11 chapters covers about a three-year period of his life. But chapter 12, to the end of the book, around chapter 20, uh, actually covers one week of his life. And the reason John dedicated so much ink to this one-week period is due to the monumental significance of this week in Jesus' life, because it was his final week. Uh, at the end of this week, he was going to endure the cross. So at the beginning of this chapter, we see the event that started off what Christians have called the Passion Week. And we, we also call this first day the triumphant entry. You've heard it probably mentioned a few times. This is the triumphant entry of Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey's colt. Now, this triumphant entry is such an important event that actually all four Gospels make note of it. And that's something to take into consideration because when these Gospel writers write events about Jesus, you don't always see the same miracle in every book or the same words that Jesus spoke to them. There, a lot of them are parallel, but not every one. Um, in this case, the triumphant entry is mentioned by all four Gospels. So to all the writers, it was a very significant <coughs> event. So with that, we have to pay close attention to what is being said. And let's just jump right into it. The first thing I want you to notice, actually, in verse 12, is the time of year it was in Jerusalem. It says, On the next day, the large crowd who had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took the branches of the palm trees and went out to meet him. So we see here, the time of year was there was a huge feast. The feast uh, that was going on at the time was Passover. 
And there were three feasts a year, an annual, three annual feasts that Jews were to celebrate. God commanded it in the Mosaic Law. That was the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Weeks, and the Passover. So the feast here is the Passover. And um, those of you who know the Passover well will know exactly what the significance of that was. But those of you who are new to it, basically um, Israel was in slavery in Egypt for 400 years. And God, through a succession of 10 plagues, released Israel from Egypt. And on the 10th plague, used what was called, he had the firstborn son and the firstborn flocks and whatnot in Egypt killed. But whoever put blood in the doorposts of their house and the frames of their doors... Uh, would have the angel of death pass over their house. So if, if the God saw the blood, um, there'd be no uh, death in that family. And it was through that last plague that Pharaoh finally, his hard, his hard heart was softened enough to let them go uh, because of all the tragedy that happened in the land that day. But what was really interesting about this Passover, even though Israel had been celebrating it for centuries, Little did they know that this was the last Passover they were ever going to have to observe. Now many did continue to observe it after this, but those who put their faith in Jesus Christ 50 50 days later, as they knew at the Pentecost, that Jesus fulfilled that Old Testament uh, sacrificial system, and he became the true Passover lamb. So from God's perspective, the Israelites didn't have to observe the Passover from this day forward, because Jesus had fulfilled it. So it's very significant in Israel's history. But because of this Passover feast, it also explains why there are such large crowds in Jerusalem. It says there, on the next day, the large crowds who had come to the feast came to meet Jesus. There's a couple of unique things about the crowds you'll want to know that may not be written you know, clearly here. First, of the thing, first is the size of the crowd. It says large here, but when you think of large, you might think 50, 100 people. That to us might be a large crowd. But this was in the hundreds of thousands this crowd. Um, remember, because the law required all Jews to obey the law, that even Jews outside Jerusalem were to make the journey to Jerusalem for this annual Passover. Uh, Josephus is a uh, Roman historian and a Jewish historian of the first century who lived not too long after uh, Jesus. He wrote in one of his books that he's, at one of the feasts there were 2.7 million people in attendance at one of the feasts. That's uh, two and a half times, well, basically double Calvary. Right? So you don't think of like a little crowd of 50 to 100 people. These are, these are hundreds of thousands of people. And let's say Josephus is exaggerating. He's not going to exaggerate from 100,000 to 2.7 million. He might be off by a bit, but he's not gonna, it's going to be like huge, huge crowds. So it's, it's, a, it's a large crowd. Um, one of my commentators, Morris, Leon Morris, suggested something interesting. He said that a lot of them he thinks probably came from Galilee. Um, a lot of this crowd who actually was, had the palm trees and were shouting out Hosanna. His reason being is that uh, Jesus did his greater part of his ministry in Galilee, and when he and they tried to embrace him as king there. Remember John, in John 6, 14 and 15, um, they tried to make him king and force him to be king, and Jesus withdrew. Well, what's interesting is uh, when these, this crowd comes to Jerusalem, they want to see Jesus, and they go to make him king. But what's it? So, like again, so when they first, when they hear that Jesus is coming, they automatically go to make him to be king. So he thinks that probably the Galileans had a, a large impact on maybe this uh, this crowd. That's his take on it. You can take it or leave it, but it is interesting nonetheless. Uh, but it also makes sense why these crowds are so enthusiastic to embrace him here. 
The difference, though, was huge. In the Galilean ministry, and, and any, any other time that people tried to make Jesus king, up until this point, he always rejected it. He is always like, my hour has not yet come. It's not time for me to be glorified. He'd speak in these terms. And so he would never allow his messiahship or Christ, him being the Christ or the king of Israel to be sort of made known too quickly. He always rejected the claims and tried to minimize the, the public, um, uh, uh, public um, desire to like, make him that. Uh, here he, re- he actually for the first time embraces it. And he actually takes their acclamations and accepts them, and accepts them to make them king. And of course, the reason, the difference now is that he's under God's timetable, and it's now time to go to the cross. The Passover sport, uh, the Passover uh, meal, um, and time is four days away. So this is um, he has to go to the cross, and God knows this, and so he's under God's timetable. So this event spurs and pushes, acts as a catalyst to get him to the cross quicker. So he fulfills prophecy. So let's look at four distinct features in the crowd's behavior towards Jesus that reflect their belief that he was indeed the Messiah. And these are, uh, these are really, in my opinion, cool, cool things to know. All right. So the first thing is their use of palm branches in verse 13. They took palm branches and went out to meet him. Why palm branches? Well, in the Jewish context, palm branches were an emblem of victory. Or an emblem of victory. The law in Leviticus 23, verse 40, stated that palms be used at the Feast of Tabernacles. So what was the Feast of Tabernacles? It was celebrating God's victory over Egypt, or over Pharaoh and freedom from slavery, and his provisionary care for them in the wilderness. So there was victory in that. And the palms were, there was a law to use palm branches as an emblem of victory for that time. But those of you who attended, uh, heard Peter speak on on Tuesday night, he mentioned the Feast of Dedication or Hanukkah, and we looked at that in chapter 10, verse 22. Um, also, the Jews used uh, palms as a way of uh, celebrating um, the Maccabean revolt victory over Antiochus Epiphanes, the uh, Assyrian uh, king who, tried, who desecrated the temple in Jerusalem and about 200 years before Jesus was born. And uh, after, after the Jews liberated the temple and liberated in Jerusalem, they used palms as a celebration of victory over this, this uh, Assyrian king. And so again, apparently even, um, I'll have to ask Peter about this, but apparently in one of my studies, I learned that they actually put palm branches on the Jewish coins after that day. So that became an emblem on the Jewish coins. Every time they would transact, do transaction in money or whatever, they'd see these palm branches and be a reminder that they won this victory over this king. So again, palms are always used as, vic- as a symbol of victory. So their use of palms in front of Jesus is very significant. Because they're saying, here comes our victor. We have victory in the coming of Jesus into Jerusalem. The only problem was this. They thought that he was coming to bring victory over Rome. They were thinking that he was coming to free them from this political uh, tyrant and to give them this independence as a nation. But Jesus had not come in that way. He'd only come to bring victory over sin and death. And they had not understood this. The second uh, thing you want to notice outside of palm branches is their use of the term Hosanna. And the word Hosanna means give salvation now or save, I pray. So Hosanna has to do with salvation. So when you sing Hosanna in, 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 um, in the worship songs from now on, you'll know what that means. 
But again, the crowds were correct in their estimations of who Jesus was. He was one who came to save, and he was someone who could offer them salvation. But again, not in the way they expected. These guys were using it correctly, but in the wrong, the term correctly, but with the wrong assumptions. They expected, again, salvation from Roman tyranny, and this Messiah to deliver them from being under their thumb. And again, Jesus had come to save them from their sins. The third use, uh, or the third thing we want to see in their behavior, is the use of the Old Testament scripture directed towards Jesus in verse 13. They say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Uh, you might want to write this down, but the scripture they wrote, chose there was Psalm 118. Psalm 118, verse 26. Now, Psalm 118 was really important to the Jews because it was part of a recited prayer that they said during the Feast of Tabernacles. So as the pilgrims would come into Jerusalem, apparently what they would do is they would sing Psalm 118, verse 26, as they came into Jerusalem. And then during the, day, the Feast of Tabernacles, uh, every morning the men would sing this as part of the ritual. Um, but it's also a significant passage because it was a passage that many of the Jews believed that spoke of the Messianic coming. So when they sang this, and it makes sense, you see, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In other words, um, we believe that when we sing this, that there is one to come in the name of God, who's going to represent God, and he's going to come as Hosanna, our Savior. So again, we even see that they believed him to be king, because after they gave this, uh, this recitation, or recitation, however you word that, <laughs> um, we see that he says here that he is, they believe him to be the king of Israel. So again, um, they're, they're reciting this psalm, in, in relation to Jesus, believing him to be the Messiah to come. And the fourth thing, which I think was kind of like the most fun for me to study, was this idea of him coming into Jerusalem on a donkey. We see that in verse 14. Yeah, Jesus finding the young donkey sat on it, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming seated on a donkey's colt. What's interesting is there was significance to this donkey because it, it identified Jesus as the true Messiah. Because in Zechariah 9.9, it was prophesied it was prophesied here um, that he was going to come on a donkey's colt. When Jesus entered into Jerusalem on a donkey, it was, like, it was to be a light bulb that, oh my goodness, here's the Messiah. He's coming in the way Zechariah had prophesied 500 years earlier approximately 500 years earlier. And here Jesus was coming in on a donkey. However, the fact that he came on a donkey had a great significance in terms of the kind of king he was going to be. You see, when he rode in on a donkey, he pointed to a distinctive feature of Christ's kingship. And I, this is something I learned uh, this week uh, as I was studying, but in ancient culture, if a king or a general had conquered, uh, wanted to conquer a nation or um, they wanted to show that they come in the name of war. They would come and enter into the city on a horse, uh, like a war horse that was decorated, and they made it like it was a real big, big, muscular, strong-looking horse, and it was a sign of aggression. So, if you wanted to show that you're a conquering king or a conquering general, you would send somebody riding on a horse as a sign of your intentions. But if you came as uh, it came on riding on a donkey, it actually demonstrated that you were coming in peace. You're coming in peace. And so everyone in Roman culture would have understood what animal you're riding on would dictate what, what, what kind of um, mandate you had in terms of 
uh, your, your political stance towards the people you're dealing with. So that's very significant because when Jesus came on a donkey, it was a statement to Israel about what kind of king he was. He wasn't coming as, coming as a warlord like the Israelite people were hoping for. He was coming as someone to make peace, someone to bring mercy and reconciliation to the nation. So he didn't come to make peace for Israel in a political sense like they were hoping. They were coming, he was coming in a spiritual sense, and they didn't understand this. And again, Israel would have saw the, 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 um, Jesus as the Messiah, as a liberator of only Israel. And, but God, as we know, taught us through the scriptures that Jesus actually came um, for the whole world, not just for Israel. Again, this would have been a huge disappointment to the Jews because they, this is not what they were expecting. And when you picture Jesus' actions against the Jewish expectations, you can see why only four days later, the same people that are hailing him as the Messiah, that are saying, you're the king of Israel, Hosanna, palm branches, they believe this guy's the victor of Israel, four days later are shouting, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Because they had this expectation of what Jesus was going to do, and within four days, that expectation was completely turned on his head, and they turned on him. They thought this guy went from basically king to a joker in four days, all because of their expectations <clears throat> didn't let them see the true meanings of the prophecies and everything else that was going on. But it wasn't only the large crowds that didn't understand the nature of Jesus, his identity and mission, his disciples didn't either, his closest followers. Look at verse 16. These things his disciples did not understand at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered the things that were written of him and that they had done these things to him. Why did they miss this? Well, it wasn't the scripture's fault. We know that. Because later, later on it says here, they remembered that these things are written of him. So when they look back in time after these events happened, they're like, oh my goodness, the scriptures did say this, but we just missed it. So it wasn't the scripture's fault that they didn't see it. And it wasn't the events that are occurring either. When they look back on the events, they're like, oh my goodness, how did we miss this thing? And it wasn't for Jesus' lack of teaching them either about what kind of king he was going to be. This is really significant. Uh, you know, we only have the disciples recording a few events in Scripture. Like you have like 20 chapters in the book or 30 chapters in the book, but they spent three years with him. So you imagine how much they could have written about him. But in Matthew alone, we have Jesus three times consecutively in different events telling the disciples what was going to happen to him. Watch this. Matthew 16, 21 and 23. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and be raised up on the third day. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this will never happen to you. So Jesus told him straight up, here's what's going to happen, here's how it's going to look. Matthew 17, 22 to 23. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised up on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. In Matthew 20, 17 to 19, as, And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death. Deliver him to the Gentiles to be mocked, scourged, crucified, and he'll be raised on the third day. <laughs> so again, the problem wasn't Jesus' clarity. 
in his teaching with these guys about what was going to happen. It wasn't the scriptures' lack of clarity about what kind of king he was going to be. The problem was these guys had adopted what the crowds had done. The culture had influenced them. Their, their, their teaching had influenced them, and they had preconceived notions of who Jesus was and why he came. And, and this is why they got so disgruntled and so dismayed when Jesus was gone. They ultimately thought that he failed to be the Messiah that he had spoken of, and they thought he failed to be the person that they had followed all these years. So because they reviewed Jesus through the same theological lens as the crowds, that led them not to interpret the scriptures correctly, didn't they fully embrace the words of Jesus, and therefore failed to recognize the events going on around them? What they had done is they put Jesus in a nice little box. Jesus was going to fit their mold of who they thought he was going to be. And they basically stuffed him inside this and put a nice bow on it and thought, this is the Jesus that I'm willing to follow. But it only left them with despair and disappointment when he didn't turn out to be who they expected. Now there's a massive, massive lesson in here for us in that. And it's so important, I'm actually going to leave it right to the end and not deal with it now. Because I feel like I'm just, I would like to just finish off the last couple of verses and then get into it. Because we're going to spend the rest of the sermon dealing with that, one, with that one thing. So here Jesus is, he's on the, coming into Jerusalem. The, the, uh, the crowds are going crazy for him, believing him to be king, honoring him with their speech and their actions. With Jesus gaining all this attention, the, the, the Pharisees are getting quite nervous. Um, they're, they're noticing that not only the pilgrims are flocking to him, but others closer to home are also taking interest in him. We see that in verse 17. It said, the, So the people who were with him, when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to testify about him. And for this reason also the people went and met him, because they heard that he had performed this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are not doing any good? Look, the whole world has gone after him. The words that the Pharisees used uh, might have been a little exaggerated, that the whole world has gone after them, but it sure gives you an idea of their emotional point of view. They were losing influence, they were losing power, and as far as they were concerned, the majority, I mean the whole world in their words, were going after Jesus Christ. And we've, we've looked at why in the past, and in previous sermons, why that was such an issue for these guys. But I mean, these, these men who had seen the miracle of Lazarus were clearly testifying about Jesus, and uh, their testimony was clearly not falling in deaf ears, because many who had heard about these things were not going to see him as well, and joining these large crowds along the roads where the pilgrims were. So you can see this huge sort of revival taking course, and the Pharisees are getting nervous. They're getting nervous. And so they need to do something about it. And again, what's interesting about this is that little did they know that the fickleness of the crowds they were worrying about here were actually going to side with them four days later. So they're worried about the crowds going after him, but four days later those same crowds will be yelling, crucify him, along with their voices. Again, not because the scriptures failed to testify about him, or even that they heard didn't hear things from Jesus, or even see miracles firsthand. It's due to the fact that they had a theological lens in which they're looking at Jesus through, and it blinded them to all other truth. And here's a lesson for us that I want to spend the rest of the sermon on. Oh, did I put it in here? Yeah. Alright. I've tried, this might be not worded the best, but I get the point across. 
Um, we need to be aware that our own personal agendas or perceptions of Jesus don't blind us to his true identity and purpose for our lives. Right? We need to be aware that our own personal agendas or perceptions of Jesus don't blind us to his true identity and the purpose for our lives. We look at the crowds and we think, how did they miss it? How did they get it so wrong with Jesus? We look at uh, the disciples and go, how did they miss who he was after all the teachings they've had and all the things they experienced with them? But listen, the culture that they experienced and things had shaped, had shaped their view of who he had been and they couldn't see any other truth because of it. The way they were raised had shaped the way they saw Jesus and they couldn't see any other way around it. And so when he didn't meet their expectations, they became dismayed and disappointed and turned on him. Now listen, that happens in our churches all the time. All the time. And I'm going to give you some examples. And this, uh, this doesn't happen, this is, like, the first examples I'm going to give you necessarily don't happen in Genesis house, but they do happen in the churches. And when I speak, hopefully you'll be able to identify and you'll have stories of these. How about this? Let's, let's, shape, let's put Jesus through a certain theological lens. Jesus the healer. Jesus the healer. Jesus has come to take care of all your ailments. All you need is enough faith and you will be healed. Okay? I've had three people in my life in the last five years give me this claim to my face. And I've had a, a debate with them over this. Three people in five years tell me that if I had enough faith, that all people would be healed. Okay? Um, what's interesting about that is uh, I, I, uh, they, we quote things like Isaiah 53, verse 4 and 5. I'll read it to you. Surely he took up our pain and our bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, the punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. See? It says that by Jesus' crucifixion, we are all going to be healed. So the only thing that's stopping us in physical healing is the fact that we don't have enough faith. I uh, went on uh, uh, Google just to check out some of these like, healing ministries. And I found this, this uh, website called www.savedheal.com. And I want to read you <laughs> what they say. Um, this is them quoting Matthew, the, the Lord's Prayer. Uh, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Authors, commentators, notes, uh, the guy who wrote the website, notes, Jesus always prays the will of God, and he prays that the will of God be done here on earth just as it is in heaven. People in heaven are not sick, so we can clearly see this God's will that we also be free from sickness and disease. Okay? <laughs> so, anyway. But again... <clears throat> People read the scriptures, but they have a theological blind, they have a lens that's blinding them to what the scriptures are saying, and so they want to see Jesus through a certain lens. No different than the disciples, no different than the crowds back then. Okay? The problem is, how do you deal with, well, we'll get into that in dialogue, but I mean, there's so many scriptures that will say contrary to these types of things. And one of the, one of the big things is, every single human being dies. Every human being dies. So at some point, this healing ministry has to say all of us lack faith. And if Jesus came to give us the same will on earth as it is in heaven, then all of us are, la are falling short of Jesus' uh, sacrifice because none of us are, are going to heaven uh, with a live body. <laughs> There's only two recorded people in history, right? I mean, Elijah and Enoch. 
So, anyway, that's besides the point. How about Jesus the uh, Prosperer? Jesus the Prosperer. This is the Jesus that has come to make you wealthy and to make you um, as rich as possible. This is the health and prosperity gospel, the Joel Olstein type. But I want to um, look at this PowerPoint because it's another uh, uh, prosperity gospel website. He quotes Job 36.11. He says, If they obey and serve him, they shall spend their days in prosperity and their years in pleasures. Note from the commentator, Obeying and serving him starts with saying that the same thing with our mouth he says here in his word. So here is what you say. Lord, I have cleaned up my act as well as I can. That's totally contrary to the gospel. <laughs> he has to clean you up anyway, but that's another point. Therefore, I am saying what you said about my prosperity. I'm looking to spend my days in prosperity, my years in pleasures, because you promised it to me. Say it over and over until God supernaturally makes it happen. <laughs> How many people end up disappointed, though, with Jesus when they're not healed? Because people come in as faith healers, and when they're laying in their bed and they're dying or they've got disease, or their kids are sick, and they're not getting well, healthy, and, 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 and even in, in the category of wealth, these people are dismayed, and, and just burdened with guilt and shame, because they, they wonder, why has God forsaken me? Why doesn't He love me? And they, they lose despair and hope in Jesus Christ. But He never, ever promised these things in the first place, but the theological lens blinds them to those truths. Uh, verses that often get quoted in these kinds of things are Jeremiah 29 11. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans to prosper you and to give you a future and hope. Here's the irony about this passage. When I looked this up for my own records, context told me everything. The, this quote, if they obey and serve him, that's one of Job's friends saying this to Job. Job, at the end of Job, God says, bring sacrifices for your friends because I'm going to basically kill them for all the bad counsel they gave you. And in your Bible, you can see Job didn't even say this. So they're using Job to quote prosperity, because Job was wealthy in the end. But they failed to notice that that was his friend saying it. And anyway, the whole thing's just a mess. So anyway, yeah. <laughs> I'm sure you have a lot to say in dialogue about this. <laughs> How about the happy Jesus? We've got the Jesus, the, help, the healer, Jesus, the prosperity guy. How about the happy Jesus, Mr. Smiley? All he cares about is your happiness. He came to make you happy. And that's all that matters. So if you're not happy and think, if you go into something like depression, then you've got to wonder what's going on because Jesus came to make you happy. So there must be something between you and God that's causing this problem. Um, but again, if you look at the scriptures, James 1 says, Consider all joy, my brothers, when you encounter trials, because trials produce a certain kind of character. Jesus didn't come to make us happy. He came to make us holy. Okay, I don't think our church is struggling with these things. Um, I mean, I know you guys well and, and whatnot, but I do think there's a couple areas, though, that, that, um, that I've personally experienced in the ministry, and not with you, but just with people within, who have come and gone in our church and, and just different experiences over the years, that I do feel there's a couple more that are worth saying. And I called this Jesus the marriage mechanic. Okay? He's the guy that's going to fix your marriage when things are going wrong. In my personal experience uh, with people, um, I've had to sit down with multiple couples um, who have been experiencing separation and divorce, or have been on, on rocky grounds, and one person in the family has always come to Christ. So they, and when I say come to Christ, at least it's a period authentic at first, and they basically would have joined the crowds. That he's, that's Hosanna, that's Palm Branches, 
and it's uh, you're the king of my life and all these kind of language. So they're basically emulating the crowds. But what's happened is, as the, as the time has gone on, there others, the other spouse has not uh, committed to the Lord in the same way, and what's happened is um, the marriage is dismantled. And what's happened is the person who made the claim to Christ walked away from Jesus. Because again, they came into the relation, they came into the council with me and, and with, their, with their spouses, believing that if they became Christians, God would heal their marriage. They didn't want God for God, they wanted God for the marriage. And when the marriage walked, failed, they moved on, and they moved into new relationships. So they ditched God and went into new relationships because they were dismayed and had no hope because they believed in a Jesus that he never came to be. They had expectations of Christ that he, never, that he were never claiming in the first place. No different than here with the triumphal entry. They had expectations of Jesus that he never claimed in the first place. He, he, he claimed these things in a different way than they expected. The theological lenses of the people didn't make them see Jesus for who he was. Can Jesus heal marriages? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, he, I mean he's done more, he's done amazing things in my own marriage, and when Denise and I had troubles in the first year. But I mean, again, there's, it takes, he's not promising a guaranteed fix-it pill when you become a Christian. I'll finish with this too. Uh, Dan, Roger, Dan Roger and I were sitting around Ikea on, the week, on, the, on Wednesday. We were discussing about all the changes in theology we've had to make over the last few years. Dan had some, I've had some, Roger's had some. And what we were saying is this, we believe that Jesus was a certain person and wanted life to function a certain way. We had all these doctrines and things we had. And then as we got learning and things were changing in our lives, we learned that we actually had the wrong interpretation of who he was. Right? But again, we discussed also too how our wrong theology actually shaped how we lived out our lives. And how it actually created like roadblocks in terms of maybe how we thought and how we spoke and all these types of things. So again, um, it's, it's, it's a very sensitive issue. Anyhow, we all have these, uh, I brought these, I didn't get a chance to wear them, but we all have lenses in which we see Jesus, right? <laughs> so I only see Jesus the healer, so when I go to scripture, when I go to scripture, I'm looking for healing passages because I want, I want it to say he's going to heal me. When I'm looking for marriage counseling, I'm looking for the passages. I know it's awesome. You can't even concentrate. <laughs> I'm looking for. I'm only reading the Bible through the lens of Jesus, the marriage mechanic, and prosperity, and all these types of things. And again, we've all got them, and so I would suggest that we have to um, be very careful in terms of how we uh, look at the Lord. Uh, I'll, I'll, I had one more lesson, it's small and quick, but I'll, I'll, I think I'll mention this, which is, this is a more like a hopeful, a hopeful thing. Um, I wrote this down as a second lesson. One can still be a follower of Jesus, a genuine follower, without having all the answers. Listen to this. These things his disciples did not understand at first, but when they were glorified, they remembered these things. Here's the deal. They're not, not disciples because they lack understanding. They're not, not disciples or genuine followers of Christ because they didn't have all the answers, because they didn't know who he truly was. They were still called disciples. That's different for the crowd. The crowds, the crowds weren't his disciples. They weren't genuine followers. At least most of them probably weren't. But some of them probably were, but we just, just too many people to record in Scripture. But as a general rule, the crowds weren't. The disciples were. And so they don't have all the answers, but Jesus says, well, you're not any less uh, connected to me because you don't understand who I am and my identity. Again, I think a lot of people can be genuine Christians and still believe in prosperity. 
or they can be genuine Christians and still believe that Jesus will heal their marriage. Again, it's not that they, just like Roger, Dan, and I were genuine Christians, but perceived Jesus through a certain lens. It's, it's not that you can't be a Christian, you just have to, you just have to be um, discipled and taught what actual truth is and why he came. And that's why discipleship's a process. It's a process of maturing. And none of us have all the answers, and none of us know all the scriptures entirely. But we're all, we want to have a humble heart so that we can grow and learn together. And I think this is comforting for us because I know, uh, I know some of you in here and your personalities, and they're a lot like mine. If you don't know an answer or you feel inadequate, you beat yourself up over it. Because you think, oh, I should know this by now, or I should know this, and I feel like I'm useless, and so on and so forth. And these feelings lead you to think that you're less of a follower of Christ than somebody else. Well, you're not. These disciples had no clue what was happening. They had no idea that four days from now their Messiah was going to be gone. And yet they're still genuine disciples. And 50 days later, we're leading the church in a revival. So again, once, Jesus, once they understood the scriptures properly, their lives took off. So again, if you're, if you're one of those persons that beat yourself up because you don't have all the answers, don't worry because you're in good company. That doesn't make you less of a follower of Jesus or makes, you, makes him love you any less because of that position you're in. How many times have I picked up the Bible on a Monday to study for Sunday for the sermon and I have no idea what the passage says? Truthfully. I'm like, what are you trying to say? And within seven days, I'm sitting in front of you going, here's what the Bible says. What's happening is, is that I'm in the process of maturing and learning and growing the same way. But if you were to ask me these questions or talk about those passages seven days prior, I wouldn't know what was being said. I don't have the understanding. Again, so it's, uh, we're all works in progresses here.